Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Today we're going to talk about polyamorous relationships. But before I dive into this conversation and give you an introduction of the bio, I wanted to remind you guys that a few months ago I drafted this list of 101 ways that you can spice up your relationship. It has different levels of activities that you can do based on the adventureness and novelty seeking of you and your partner. I already got tons of positive feedback. So if you haven't downloaded the list, it's completely free. Check out the show notes. There's going to be a link on where to download it. Today, as I mentioned, we're going to talk about polyamorous relationships. Our guest today is one of my dear colleague, Martha Calpi, she's an expert when it comes to navigating polyamorous relationships. So we're going to talk about how can you assess if this is the right relationship for you. We're going to talk about different types of polyamorous relationships, because as you know, there's not only one way you can do this relationship structure right. And we're going to talk about how you can explore with your partner about coming up with the rules and boundaries around what would work for you and what wouldn't work for you guys and where you can find a third partner or additional partners. And also Martha will give us tons of good strategies around communicating with your secondary partner or alternative partners that they're not necessarily feeling left out because of reality of involvement of other parties in the relationship. Definitely stay tuned for that conversation. Marta Calpi, she's an LMFD, is an educator, ASAC certified sex therapist, and supervisor, and AMFD approved supervisor. She specializes in relational sex therapy, including alternative family structures, and trained therapists to work effectively at the intersection of sex issues and relationship challenges. Martha's mission is to make sex a safe topic in therapy rooms everywhere by developing unique educational experiences and immediately applicable learning materials for therapists. She has a book coming out in August 2020 about working effectively with clinical challenges related to polyamory. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Martha Cappy. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am excited and honored to have Martha Kalpi, licensed marriage family therapist and ASAC supervisor with us. Martha, welcome to our show. Thank you so much. I'm just delighted to be here. This is our second conversation. Many of our listeners love the first conversation we had, so I'm very excited to go deeper on some of those topics that we explored last time. So we talked about polyamory. I know that's one of your areas of specialty. So tell us, how can someone know if polyamorous relationship is the right fit for them? That's such a good question, and it's an interesting one. There are a lot of people that I see in my therapy practice who have some issue in their relationship 
that is solved by polyamory. And it's interesting because polyamory seems like it's kind of complicated, relationally speaking, and maybe isn't a good solution for any problem, but it actually is. So the first population that I would say is really right for polyamory are people who identify as polyamorous. And interestingly, a lot of people don't even know that open relationships exist in an ethical form or that 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 there are enough people who have open relationships that it's possible to actually have one, you know, find a partner and make a, a relationship like that. And I think if more people knew about it, more people would be able to figure out, oh, all the infidelity that I've had in all of my relationships, maybe that's telling me something about my nature. So the biggest group, I did a little study about polyamory, and the biggest group in terms of why people choose polyamory, by far the biggest group was, it's just the way I am. So I think it's, you can't really talk about who does, who's polyamory right for without talking about people for whom polyamory really is an expression of their deepest, most authentic self. But then, you know, aside from that, there are a lot of people who are in open relationships who don't identify as polyamorous or who find polyamorous relationships to work for them, but it feels more like a choice than an identity issue, if that makes sense. And one example would be a couple, for instance, with a really huge desire discrepancy. For instance, you know, they're going along in their long-term relationship and it turns out that one partner figures out that they're asexual, for instance, yet they, their partner isn't asexual, wants to have an active sex life, but they don't want to break up. They don't want to dissolve their marriage over this because as we all know, there are a million things that are wonderful about relationships other than sex. So you shouldn't have to get rid of your relationship just to resolve a huge desire discrepancy. And some of the couples that I work with have resolved that by opening their relationship. Because ethical non-monogamies involve consent of all concerned and negotiated agreements, people can craft that relationship to look like whatever they want it to look like. So it's not like there's a rule book for what it has to be. And I think that one aspect of that is to realize that one of the myths about polyamory, which is that people who are in polyamorous relationships are promiscuous, is not true. So a person might open their relationship and then their partner might just only have one partner for 10 years or something like that. And the whole system, the whole relationship system just stabilizes and is actually made more stable by that other person being there because then the partner's not seeking other partners. The partner is sexually satisfied and relationally satisfied. So that's one situation that's been helped by polyamory. Other kinds of discrepancies too, like a contact discrepancy, like maybe one partner really loves to go out dancing and be really social and do lots of stuff like that. And the other partner is an introvert, really wants to sit home and read. It's nice if there's somebody else who can kind of take that aspect of the partner's life out and it makes a lot less pressure on the partner who wants to stay home. Big sexual differences like one partner is kinky and the other partner is not kinky can also be resolved this way because then the kinky partner can go and find kinky partners. And those might be sexual relationships or they might be non-sexual relationships. They might just be play partners in a sort of a monogamish agreement that is sort of semi-monogamous, semi-open, and very uniquely crafted for the couple. Also, if somebody has a new awareness of bisexuality, that's a time when I see people open their relationships. Sometimes when somebody discovers a new aspect of their identity that just emerged, like bisexuality or pansexuality or kinkiness for that matter, 
they might be willing to not explore that, but they might not be willing to not explore that. They might really feel like they don't want to go through their whole life and never explore that aspect of themselves. And if their partner can get on board with the idea that they can still have a secure attachment in their relationship, follow through on agreements, have emotional safety together and stability while their partner also has another sex partner or more than one other sex partner, it can work out really, really well. Excellent. And I love that you talked about how opening up their relationship can may possibly increase the stability of the relationship because many of the couples I see that they think like if they open up the relationship, they're one step closer to separation. And it seems like that's not the case. Yeah, that's a really common misconception. And I think that's based in our cultural indoctrination into monogamy, honestly, because we have this idea that you can only have one partner at a time. And what that means is that if you develop an interest in someone else, which most people do sooner or later, your choices are infidelity, don't act on it, right? Or open your relationship or serial monogamy, break up and switch. And if serial monogamy and infidelity are really your only options, that sucks. That's like a terrible menu of options. And I think one of the things I love most about talking about polyamory is I love shaking up this idea that serial monogamy is the only way that you can go. Like, that's ridiculous. Why should you get rid of a perfectly functional, fabulous relationship just because you develop a crush on someone else? Mm-hmm. And I've noticed that uh, sometimes some of the relationships are, for lack of a better word, they're dead, that there's just no energy, no kind of like eroticism, nothing is going on as long as like when they open up the relationship, it kind of like add this fresh air in the relationship and the partner become more excited and more energized and that impact their kind of like sexual interactions as well. The other thing is I feel even among healthcare providers, therapists, there's a stigma around polyamorous relationships, around open relationships. A few years ago, Darcy Easton came to Los Angeles County Psychological Association. She presented, I ordered her book, Ethical Slot, and I got two copies like randomly from Amazon. And since then, I've been bringing it to all the kind of like gift exchange stuff and always coming back with it, (laughs) even with therapists, because people are just like even looking at it. You can see the reaction. Oh God, no, I don't want that. And you're right that that can be very helpful for many people. And I think as therapists, it's very important for us to be, and I know that's your specialty, but like our listeners are to be open to different way of being and kind of help people to navigate these things. And I know similar to other form of open relationships, polyamorous relationships perhaps have different dynamic, different structures. So help us understand some of these different structures. Sure. But first, I want to back up and address something you just said. My message for therapists everywhere is polyamory actually can work. You know, I teach therapists about this because there's this really prevalent idea that you have to have romantic and sexual exclusivity in order to have a secure bond and a secure attachment. And that is just not true, I promise you. So the way that I know this is I just see it all the time. And I, I, you know, I did the research I did, and I just finished writing a book about working with therapeutic challenges in polyamory because I really want therapists everywhere to know that it actually does work. Because, 
you know, we don't learn this stuff. Nobody came and spoke at your graduate program and told you that polyamory works. So that's my job. And um, I just, I can't deny what I observe. And I've seen lots of very well-functioning, very healthy, open relationships. So if, if you don't take anything else away, I would say take that away. And then, you know, once a therapist knows that, a lot opens up in terms of possibility because most therapists have some experience accepting that their clients are going to make personal decisions differently than the therapist would, right? Like we're trained to manage the fact that we are not our clients and that our clients make different decisions than we do. But what we're also trained to do is to make challenges and interventions where we think something is maladaptive. So what I want you to know is polyamory in and of itself is not maladaptive. There are plenty of maladaptive relationship systems and relationships, but polyamory is not the problem. Some other aspect of the dynamic between the participants is the problem, not the open relationship itself. Love that. And I agree with you. And I feel like, I think like there are so many things that we can sit with it. And like, for for example, I used to work substance use and in methadone clinics. And I feel people have, at least my colleagues that I know and I work with, they have more tolerance about people making kind of their own decisions in all aspects of their kind of like their life. But when it comes to relationship, it's some, something in them get triggered and they kind of feel this urge that I need to intervene and kind of at times kind of correct the kind of mistake that people are making. And I, I created this kind of air code because as you said, I'm, I love that you're saying that you're seeing many couple using it as a way to augment their relationship and improve their bond. And I think it's very helpful to hear it from someone that worked with those couples. Yeah, uh, that's just one of the most fascinating things to me about relationships is that once you sort of break out of the idea that there's a rule book about what a relationship should look like, then you can craft a relationship that fits the unique participants. And if everybody did that, there would be a lot more healthy monogamous relationships too. You know, if we didn't have to follow some sort of gender stereotype rule book, if we didn't have to follow any rule book at all, instead we could sit down and do a real reality-based assessment of strengths Mm -hmm. and challenges and figure out how to make relationship participants sort of balance out each other's strengths and challenges so that the sum of the parts, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. That would be ideal. Mm -hmm. But in order to do that, you have to be able to do a reality-based assessment. And in order to do that, you have to be able to step out of the box of a rule book. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. So let's kind of pivot to the different types because it's, and I'm going to, I'm going to make a confession. I didn't know not all the polyamorous relationship have secondary and primary kind of dynamic. And I made that comment in the session and one of my clients, they did not like that. <laughs> so tell us understand what are some of different types? Yeah. Well, first of all, there's a primary secondary structure, which is a situation where there's a primary dyad, like a couple maybe has been married for a while, and they decide to open their relationship. And the agreement that they make is it's okay with me if you have other partners, but our relationship needs to come first. So that might include some specific rules about how often I feel comfortable with my partner seeing another person or, or whatever. Or it might include something like veto, like one partner could say, I don't feel comfortable with you seeing that person, so you can't see that person. And there's an inherent power dynamic 
in that. And I want to point out that that's, so a primary secondary relationship is hierarchical. The primary relationship comes before the needs of the primary relationship are put before the needs of any other relationships. But there are some relationships that look a little like that, that don't have an implied hierarchy. For instance, with nesting partners. So if there is a couple that lives together and then each of them dates other people, they may not have a hierarchical structure to their polyamory, but it's going to look a little hierarchical because they have shared commitments, a mortgage, pets, kids, what have you, that essentially essentially require that they be available to each other in certain kinds of ways. You know, when the basement floods, everybody who holds the mortgage has an interest at stake. You know, it's not a thing you'd want to miss because you were out on a date. Not only would you want to be there for your partner, you also would want to be there for your house. Mm-hmm. So, that, so there's a certain blurring of the lines, I think, that is important to recognize. There are non all kinds of non-hierarchical structures for polyamory in addition to nesting partners, though. So somebody might be practice solo polyamory where they make their decisions themselves about who they see and how they see them and when they see them. And they probably will take into account the preferences of their partners, but they're making their own decisions. There might be just a non-hierarchical dyad. So a couple who opens their relationship, but who doesn't believe in hierarchy and isn't interested in saying the needs of one person are more important than the needs of another person. And that's easier to actually carry out in a way that's recognizable if you're not nesting partners as well, because especially with kids involved, any other partner is going to, of course, sometimes feel sidelined a little bit because the soccer game is going to come first or some medical emergency crops up and a date gets canceled or what happens with life. So that can feel hierarchical, but it isn't hierarchical in that there's not a rule book that says this person's needs always are going to supersede that person's. And that can be challenging, I can imagine. Like no one wanted to be kind of, I don't know a good way of putting it, but like a secondary kind of like a less than as far as the, in the relationship dynamic. And I would imagine, for example, if I'm in a polyamorous relationship and my partner tells me like, you know, my wife want to do this, therefore we're canceling our date. I would kind of feel rejected, I would imagine. So how can people navigate that? Well, you just said two things that are really important. I'm going to see if I can hold both threads here. One of them is I would not recommend that anybody say my wife needs or wants blah, blah, and so I have to cancel the date. You've got to take your own responsibility for your own choices. Mm -hmm. So I would say to that client, hold on a second. Where's your personal responsibility? Where's your choice? Nobody is making you do anything. And the secondary partner is going to feel much more chosen and much better held with respect and security if their partner is able to say, I had a conversation with Susan and I realized I need to cancel our date this Thursday because it's important to me to show up in a particular way in that relationship. Mm-hmm. that's a much more solid message mm-hmm. than to just pass the buck mm-hmm. and say, 
Oh, Susan's so needy today, so this week, you know, so I have to sideline you because I bow down to her for no good reason. Like, that's bullshit. That's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. So there's an aspect of taking personal responsibility for your own choices and your own boundary setting. And that comes up in therapy frequently because mm -hmm. it's not intuitive. We weren't mostly taught about emotional boundaries. We weren't mm -hmm. taught that when somebody says, this is what I want, we still get to make a choice and then we need to own our choice. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that you said was about what's in it for the secondary partner. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, a secondary partnership is perfect for some people mm -hmm. like who don't want more of a relationship than that, who are happy to have you take your laundry away and go away and leave them alone and back to their life. They've got lots of other interests or they travel a lot or what have you. I've seen lots of happy, really happy secondary partners. Mm -hmm. And also, nobody feels good in a relationship where they feel unchosen mm -hmm. or not prioritized or not respected. Mm -hmm. And that's not about the relationship structure or the power dynamic. That's about the personal boundaries and the ability to connect and to take responsibility, I think. I think it's possible to have a primary secondary relationship where it's hard to tell that it's not hierarchical because it's so respectful and boundaried. Mm -hmm. So I think that there again is an example where there's a problem other than the relationship structure mm -hmm. and other than polyamory. It has, has to do with something about personal responsibility and self-awareness. Mm -hmm. And I think you got to have really good communication skills. <laughs> In order to say what what you just said, because I can imagine then the draw would be like, you know, like any other group dynamic kind of family structure to triangulate and kind of like project that putting, putting it on someone else. And I think for the secondary partner at times, it would be hard to say that what you say, I feel this way or I feel rejected when you say that. So the partner even might not have the understanding that when you say this thing, it makes the second person feel or the second person feel feels that way when they hear that. And I think the other piece of it is I'm out of curiosity. Tell me, do people kind of are open about this is my primary relationship and your secondary relationship or that's kind of usually not communicated? I know it's not a kind of a standard way of doing it perhaps, but I'm wondering what, what is customary? Well, I think it's customary to know mm -hmm. what your relationship structure is. Mm -hmm. So, if there was a couple who was opening their relationship and they'd had a bunch of conversations about what they wanted their relationship to look like, they have some agreements in place about how this is going to go down and sort of the first layer of their experiment. And I think it's customary for them to share that information as it's relevant to another partner. Mm -hmm. So if somebody has a primary secondary structure, I think that the most common thing would be that they know it and that mm -hmm. they say it. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, I do want to say that being a secondary partner can be really, really rough, but, but I still am sticking with my point that it's possible to not be in an uncomfortable power dynamic, regardless of what your role is. And it, so if there's anybody listening to this, who's a secondary partner who's in a relationship that's not feeling good, I would say speak up. And if speaking up about what you prefer doesn't result in your partner responding in some way that feels respectful. You may not get what you want, but you should feel respected and you should feel heard. Mm -hmm. And if you don't feel respected and you don't feel heard, then that partner is, I would say, not a good choice. Mm -hmm. You know, that partner's got a little growth that needs to happen. Mm -hmm. And the only way that people do 
difficult growth curves is because somebody they care about says, yeah, that didn't really work very well for me. I love that you're talking about the secondary partner can be a beautiful arrangement and I can totally see it. I've seen it with few clients uh, because perhaps you can get the best version of the other partner, right? Like you have your own life, you're doing your own things. And as you said, like you're not, you don't need to deal with the laundry and all those kind of like a kind of like challenges of a routine of everyday life. Right. That's right. Perhaps yeah. you see them on weekends or whatever arrangement you guys have doing fun stuff. So that can be a meaningful relationship. And also it's not you can have other priorities in your life as well. Right. And, you know, polyamory, whether it's hierarchical or non-hierarchical, does allow relationships to find their own level. So if if every relationship doesn't have to be a lifelong marital bond, then that opens up the possibility that you could be with somebody that you really only want to spend two hours with at a time. And you could, and it could be a fabulous two hours, but my God, marriage, no way, right? So I think that's a really nice thing. It really causes a learning curve in terms of figuring out what makes a good relationship and what is the natural shape of each unique relationship rather than trying to stuff everything into a lifelong marital bond kind of a box? Because how many relationships fit into that box anyway? Not that many, you know? I think as therapists who really, you know, believe in and value relational connection, I think we should know about polyamory because it's a way for people to experience more relational connection because you don't have to force a relationship to be something that it isn't or leave it or choose between. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about, I can imagine perhaps it's tough to find partners or maybe that's, that's why they need, people need to work with you because to me, think about, okay, if people are like open relationship, they're into swinging, they can go to swing parties, they, there are clubs and places they can go for kind of a non-monogamous relationships that are more focus on solely sexual aspect, it's easier to find partners. But polyamory, my understanding is the relationship. So where are some of the places that people find the other partners? Well, lots of communities have meetup groups. So there might be something like poly cocktails in your community or uh, something like that. Also, there's a huge amount of overlap between several different marginalized populations, one being polyamory, another being BDSM kink, and another being LGBTQAI+. So those are overlapping marginalized populations, meaning that there are a lot of people who are in more than one of those groups, which means that places where you might meet kinky people are places where you might meet polyamorous people. For instance, FetLife, which is uh, social media for kink. And in fact, I think polyamory is considered kink under the umbrella of kink, which is interesting. I consider it an alternative relationship structure, not so much a kink, but whatever. There's so much overlap between populations that I think FetLife is not a bad way to find people who are in open relationships. And all you need is to find one opening in your community. There are also lots of communities have support groups for people who are in polyamorous relationships. And I've heard a lot of mixed reviews of various support groups for polyamory. They don't meet everybody's needs, but what they can do, if you just go like twice, even if you don't love the group, you can certainly find out how to meet people. Mm -hmm. 
You can also place an ad. So some of the dating sites have options for not monogamy. Mm-hmm. And I've had lots and lots of clients who found partners that way. Mm-hmm. Okay, Cupid comes to mind. Oh, interesting. I didn't know they have a polyamory option, but kind of thinking about more naturally, like organically meeting people in the community. I work with many, at least my experience again in my community, that women that they came in and said like, you know, I started this relationship with so-and-so and they said they, they are in a polyamorous kind of arrangement with their partner or it's an open relationship. And later on, I realized they were lying or they were separated from their partner, but they were lying about it and they just wanted to to pursue other other partner without honoring their agreement they had with the partner. And I know that's not the case, but I've seen many, for everyone, but I've seen many people who kind of got stuck in that, that kind of place and either got hurt or they got involved in a relationship that didn't match their values and were, they were not congruent with their values. Do you recommend people to kind of talk to the other partner to see if really it's an open marriage or relationship? How do you recommend people navigating that piece? I probably would recommend that, especially in a situation, I, I would trust your gut for one thing. I mean, if you're dating somebody and you're not getting a super solid, honest vibe from them, I'm thinking that might not be the best idea. Mm-hmm. But that's one reason why I think meeting people who are in communities that are polyamorous confers a little bit of security mm-hmm. rather than some random person who just says, yeah, we, uh, we're separated, you know, or we have an open relationship and then turns out to be lying. I mean, how do you vet anybody mm-hmm. who you're dating? I don't think it's really any different from that, except for that with polyamory, you do have the option to say, so I'd like to talk to your partner before I get really involved here. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's unreasonable, but I will say that not every partner wants that. So it's possible to be in a polyamorous relationship where one partner doesn't really want to meet the other partner's partners, doesn't want to know who they are, isn't interested in knowing them, isn't interested in meeting them, and in fact, doesn't want to know. So, and I don't think that's bad either. So I don't think it's necessarily a red flag if somebody says my partner doesn't want that. But I do think if you ask somebody like, what are your relationship agreements? How did you and your wife decide to open your relationship? How did that all come about? Then you're going to get some data Mm-hmm. that, you know, and I don't mean through what they're saying. Mm-hmm. I mean, through how they're acting and whether this is an easy conversation for them, you know, like start looking for the tells that would suggest that this person is just lying. If you just ask for more information, I think it's so valid to say, tell me how this came about. Explain to me what your relationship looks like. How did, you know, who, whose idea was it? How did it come about? What have been the pitfalls? And then if it turns out later that they're giving you an opposite story, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we learn about the character of the people that we're with mm-hmm. by having real conversations with them. So I would want to go deep early mm-hmm. in terms of what is what kind of relationship structure do you have and how did you come to it? Somebody who's really in a polyamorous relationship will be able to have that conversation. My gosh, they had all kinds of conversations about relationship agreements and how they were going to open their relationship in order to structure things. 
that's such a smart way of going about it. <laughs> I didn't even think about it because if they don't have a coherent story about it, a narrative about that, that gives you tons of good information that this is perhaps something that they're making up or they're not clear about things. And even if they just started the relationship and like opening up the relationship and they're not clear about boundaries, that can be problematic as well. So I love that you are inviting people to kind of examine different ways to kind of assess if this is a truly open relationship, what are some of the rules and talking about and inquiring about the rules also help you to have as a secondary partner or the other person in the relationship to know where are the boundaries are so you can emotionally prepare yourself. Yeah. One of the, if the relationship is hierarchical, uh, so you talked about there are, we talked about some dynamics that possibly create some challenges. So we talked about one that they're kind of like the communication piece. Anything else that comes to your mind? Challenges that come with a hierarchy? Yeah. No, I mean um, like the dynamic, like when people are not approaching it tactfully. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of ways that a primary-secondary relationship can go sadly wrong, especially for other people, because it can really get to be a situation where the couple bond is really privileged over any other bond, and that's a difficult situation for anybody else, especially anybody who is romantically connected or wants a deeper relationship. Not everybody does, but if they do, it can be a really, really painful and difficult situation Particularly, you know, it's not that uncommon for me to hear we're relatively early in opening our relationship or we did it a while ago, didn't go well, we closed it again, we opened it again, we're trying again, and my partner has really mixed feelings about it. That's a story that I hear fairly often. And there are some people who would choose not to date in a situation like that and who would choose only to date somebody who was like, yeah, we've been doing this for years. We've got it down pat. That's the safest possible situation emotionally. But, it, you know, that's not to say that you couldn't have a great situation with somebody who's on shakier ground, but it's good to kind of know that at the start that this couple that is in the primary role may not be so stable. Because if that couple is not so stable, what that's going to mean is your dates are going to get canceled. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody's going to have a meltdown, your date's going to get canceled. But, you know, it's not just going to be the water heater blew up. It's also going to be, you know, a moody day, you know, jealousy, freak out, what have you. And those are all really potentially valid reasons to have your partner stay home and be with you and co-regulate with you. But this is one reason why I talk about self-regulation. Mm -hmm. Because if you're involved in any relationship, but certainly in a polyamorous relationship, I think that self-regulation is going to be more important skill set for you than co-regulation. Mm -hmm. Co-regulation is great when you can get it, but the problem is you need somebody who's into it at the same moment that you are. Mm -hmm. And you know, speaking as somebody who's in a long-term relationship, 25 years, you just, everybody who's in a long-term relationship knows that when it's really hard is when I need something and you need something. We both need something at the same time. Who's in charge here? You know, who's, who's going to get their way? And the answer is nobody. Mm -hmm. And so everybody needs to be able to go to their own corner and self-regulate. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're in a polyamorous relationship, you need to be extra good at self-regulating because it's not enough to feel your partner's love when they're at the grocery store or when they're out of town. Now you need to be able to feel your partner's love and positive regard when they're actually in bed with somebody else. Mm -hmm. And that's a, a higher level of self-regulation 
to be able to manage your emotions in that situation. I am a big fan of self-regulation and have spent dozens of years studying how do you build these skills and because I think that this is how you be a happy person, you know, to be able to have some self-reliance on your own emotional security and stability rather than needing to go find somebody to stabilize you when you're feeling unsettled. And it's interesting that as you were talking about it, I was thinking about fear of clients that they have. So I think in like any relationship, your unconscious patterns can get activated while you're in a relationship. So I have few of clients, at least right now, that they're talking about they want to be chosen. They need, they want to kind of like work through kind of gaining the person's approval and love. And I'm thinking even if at times they, they are a secondary partner, unconsciously they're working through kind of like, I, I'm going to turn to become a primary person. And that can be problematic. And oh God, jealousy, I can imagine, can be very, very challenging. Not necessarily, it's the only challenge in a polyamorous relationships. I know that it's certainly, I see it in my clients or are in a monogamous relationship. Relationship. So I love that you're emphasizing on a self-regulation, but I can imagine your attachment wounds can get amplified when you are in a relationship thinking there is another person and my partner is in bed with them. So what are yeah. some of the tools that people can use? I know you said like you developed them for years and I know you have your several presentation that you had on jealousy, but like what are some of the kind of a small things that people can do to start that path? Well, one thing is, Thoughts lead to feelings. So if you're having a feeling like jealousy or anxiety, I would say jealousy is usually sort of a form of anxiety. If you ask yourself, what am I thinking to scare myself? What am I thinking to make myself feel jealous? And then you can figure out whether that's an assumption. Like, uh, am I, let's, I'll use uh, an example in first person. So let's imagine I'm feeling jealous. And I think, well, what am I thinking to scare myself? And I figure out I'm thinking, I think my partner thinks that other partner is way, way, way more attractive than I am. Okay, well, that's self-comparison. And so that's like a category of feelings. And then I, if this were a client of mine, I would say, what would you rather feel than jealousy and anxiety? What would you rather feel? Well, I would rather feel secure, grounded balanced, self-reliant, connected? And then what would you tell yourself to cause the feelings of self-reliance, balance, and connection? We're so societally indoctrinated to think that our feelings come from things outside of ourselves, from circumstances, from stuff other people do or say, but then when we have a hard feeling, we go running for somebody else to make us feel good. Mm-hmm. But in fact, the whole thing is an inside job and you actually can manage it yourself by figuring out, well, am I making an assumption? Maybe I want to check with my partner whether that assumption is true or not. Am I making a comparison? Do I want to make a comparison like that? What do I believe in about this? Is there an assumption in that comparison? Would there be some good to be gained from having a conversation with my partner about it? Or is this really totally an inside job? Mm -hmm. You know, Love that. I like I can talk to you about these things. 
for hours, but I noticed I were toward the end of your uh, our time. And I love that you have a blog, you have training. So people, if they want more of this, they can find find it in the different websites and the teachings that you have. So please share with us what are some of the ways that people can get access to more of the educations and information that you offer. Sure. Uh, well, my website is instituteforrelationalintimacy.com and I have a blog. I regularly blog about sex issues, relationship issues, differentiation of self and non-monogamies and a variety of other issues related to sex and sexuality. And that's a free resource. So I recommend that. I have a book coming out in August that is clinical toolkit for working with polyamory and therapy. And I think it's got a working title. It might change. I'm not sure. But its working title is Polyamory, a Therapist Toolkit. So, yeah. And so that'll be coming out as published by Roman and Littlefield. And very excited about that. Congratulations. Uh, Yes. Thank you. I also have a webinar that you can buy on my website that is for therapists about working with polyamory. It's got just a whole bunch of information about polyamory. It's a little over an hour long. And you can get a CE for that. And I do other various course offerings and speaking opportunities. There's an events page on my website if you want to take a class or something. And you can also send me email and tell me that you've got a question and you want me to answer it in my blog. And usually I'm happy to do that if I have time to put it together. Excellent. Thank you so much for being so generous with us today and sharing all this wonderful resources and information. I'll make sure that we leave this link in the show notes. And we would love to know about your book when you publish it. Please, please let us know. I would love to have you back or we can talk about the book. It was lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much, Martha, for your time. Thank you so much. What a pleasure. I hope you found my conversation with Martha helpful about how you can assess if this is the right relationship structure for you and what are some of the things you need to have in place in order to move forward with this arrangement if, again, this is something that resonates with you. But I think most importantly, what I really like that when she talked about how to phrase things differently, because as she mentioned, it's easy to blame our primary partner for things or other even relative for things that for the part that we're not showing up for things that we're not doing instead of kind of reframing it and being more intentional and thoughtful about our conversations and the reasons that we're not able to fulfill our promises. So that I loved her reframing. And I also encourage you to think about learning different strategies when it comes to communication skills with your partner. And I invite you to restructure, reframe the way that you're saying things. And we all do this in the relationship. That's not working for you. So perhaps you can see in your relationship, what is one of the consistent feedback you get from your partner about your communication style? So for example, my husband is down to the point, very direct, and I tend to be wordy because I want to give the context that you can see with this outro to people. So one thing I can do is kind of focus on being more clear and shortened in my feedback and communication. And we all have this vulnerability. So it would be interesting for you guys to also to do this trial and error and see what is one area that you can improve when it comes to communication. Anyhow, this was our interview today. And thank you so much for listening. And stay tuned for the next episode next Tuesday. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. 
For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.